0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins. So excited to be coming at you in 2022 with some new episodes, and we're going to launch those each week now in the spring and the summer as I'm now on the road to 100 podcast episodes with Reimagined Schools. In this episode, episode number 89, I'm pleased to welcome in not one, but two great guests as Ken Kay and Susie Boss, the co-authors of the book, Redefining Student Success, Building a New Vision to Transform Leading, Teaching, and Learning, joined me to talk about how school districts can move beyond the portrait of a graduate to have deeper conversations and communities about how to teach kids to become creative problem solvers. This was a great conversation and certainly one that's timely as schools are back at it trying to problem solve and figure out the best course of action for school improvement. So you certainly want to tune in and share this episode out with the friends and colleagues in your school. With this new episode also comes an exciting new opportunity to connect with fans of the podcast with a new buy me a coffee link, a space to leave comments about your favorite guests and episodes. But here in Kentucky, we're going to add a little bit of a twist. I'm not a coffee drinker myself. So with this episode, we're going to launch a new Buy Me a Bourbon page for those that have an interest in supporting my work and might want to raise a glass to my mission to help reimagine schools. You can find the link buymeacoffee.com slash Dr. Greg Goins in the show notes and also in my Twitter bio at Dr. Greg Who knows? I might just give you a shout out in a future episode. So let's get to it, folks. This is a great conversation with Ken Kay and Susie Boss. I'm very excited to bring you this conversation about redefining student success. The Reimagine Schools podcast begins right after this quick promo from the Education Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Woods, host of Leading Out of the Woods, a part of the Education Podcast Network just like the show you're
1: listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Very excited to have two guests today, Ken K and Susie Boss. They are the co-authors of a fantastic book entitled Redefining Student Success, Building a New Vision to Transform Leading, Teaching, and Learning. And so excited to catch up with you guys. Big congrats on the book. It came at the perfect time. So thanks for being
1: here. Thanks
0: for the invitation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we we think so too. The timing of it is really uh, fortuitous. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, just to kind of give our, uh, the listeners a little preview of what the book's about, you both have done work, Ken, you specifically with Portrait of a Graduate, uh, that's kind of been your life's work uh, over the years with 21st century skills. Uh, so this is kind of a question for both of you. At what point did you realize that it was time to collaborate on this kind of project that was kind of kind of go from the theory part to the action part? And Sus- Susie, we'll start with you.
2: Oh, okay. Well, you know, I have to credit Ken for uh, approaching me with this idea. uh, So he can tell you more about what his inspiration was. But I'll tell you from my perspective, um, you know, my work has been more at the teacher level. Ken has really worked more at the leadership level. And I've worked with teachers in all kinds of contexts, all kinds of countries. So we're trying to shift to more student-centered learning often through project-based learning Um, and again and again I've encountered uh, the urgency of leaders being part of this conversation that we can't have a wonderful grassroots initiative really take hold and be sustained if leaders don't have a a long-term vision for how this is going to benefit their students so for me it, it was the chance to address one of those issues I've seen that that you know great things can get started but they can stall if if there's a change at the top uh, or a change of direction at the top um, but Ken can tell you more about uh, his inspiration
1: well I uh, had re- retired uh, in 2019 at the end of 2019 and so I think I probably approached Susie earlier that year as I was thinking about what my post-retirement projects would be and um, I knew her and I knew um, about her work uh, because she had invited me, well, one, because I was on the board of PBL Works and, and she was one of the most respected um, uh, consultants around PBL um, and on the national faculty. But um, she had invited me to write a forward to a book she wrote about community engagement. And that's when I really understood when I read that book and I wrote that forward. Uh, that's when I really understood she and I were kindred kindred spirits. Um, because the 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 next iteration of the twenty first century movement uh, needed to be rooted in communities and community engagement. So the uh, the impetus for the book was to say, look, uh, we've had, Uh, a partnership for 21st century learning framework, we've had the four C's, Um, we've have the portrait of a graduate, uh, but we now need to bring that portrait of a graduate to life for folks um, in a way that they understand basically two things. One, it needs to be rooted in their community, and two, it needs to be rooted in self-directed creative problem solving. And, um, I was worried that um, people were basically either taking the four C's or taking their portrait of a graduate and shoehorning it into state standards um, and not really understanding at the end of the day that this is about our kids being able to solve complex problems and be self-directed in doing it. And so the impetus for the book was to get out those two messages about the importance of community engagement and the importance of creative problem solving. And that's sort, sort of how the book started. And I thought per, uh, Susie would be the perfect uh, collaborator for that work. And, I've tur- and it turns out I was right.
2: <laughs> we both had a great time on this, this project. Um, you know, big conversations. We can talk more about that.
0: You know, I've always been a, a huge fan of this idea of districts really bringing the community in and doing this really deep dive into what that portrait of a graduate should look like and, you know, tons of momentum around that and more and more districts have kind of fallen in line, and doing the right thing there. The thing that I'm really interested in is I'm starting to hear more and more about this idea of creating a portrait of a teacher, or a portrait of an educator. And uh, that was kind of one of those aha moments for me, you know, why did we start there I know kids come first, but the teacher is such a crucial part of the learning process. So Susie, let's start with you and then we'll kind of let Ken weigh in on that. Uh, you know, does the process similar or how is it different than sure. the profile of a graduate?
2: Sure. And I think this is kind of one of the newer um, uh, directions that we're seeing, you know, districts go. Um, and, and it, it. you know, you mentioned, you know, why not start with teachers? We really think you've got to start with students and that the community conversation needs to be, what do we want our students to know and by be able to do? you know, by the time they complete their education with us. And then from that, with that is your North Star, as we describe it. Then you think about what is it our teachers need to be able to, to know and be able to do to help students get there? So we think the student vision is really important to start with. And then backwards design from that. What are those competencies that teachers need? What are those growth opportunities for them? And of course, that opens the door for you know, a much more effective professional learning, collaborative learning, PLCs, all of that to help teachers move in that direction. Doesn't mean they have to have all those competencies immediately, just as all of our students don't have them immediately, but this is what they wanna be working toward to support um, students. And I'm sure Ken's gonna have more to say there about how important this is for building that culture.
1: Well, I, you know, the, the portrait of, a, of, a, of an educator is something that uh, is, is one of the reasons we wanted to write the book because it's something that's relatively new and very relatively few districts doing it. Um, so we're very excited to share some examples in the book of districts that have done it um, and, and give some concrete e- examples. Um, just to address your question about why not start there, um, Susie, Susie did, but I want i want to make another point about that, which is um, teachers should be involved in the portrait of a graduate exercise. Uh, yes, it's driven by educational leaders and the community, but teachers should be part of that process. They have a lot to offer the conversation. Um, but, you know, quite frankly, over the years, I've had disagreements with teachers who think that, or educators who think that Uh, The portrait of a graduate should actually be owned by teachers. And and, uh, I think Susie and I respectfully disagree. It's got to be rooted in the community and owned by the school board. And um, then I think once you have that vision, then allowing or encouraging teachers to own the process of defining the portrait of a grad educator is very powerful. And there's an example in the book of a district whose teachers union suggested the creation of a portrait of an educator, because they felt that that would be the long-term vision for teacher evaluation. And that makes all the sense in the world actually, which is if you are going to have a portrait of a graduate rooted in your community, and then you have the teachers help you determine, well, what competencies do they need to bring that portrait of a graduate to life with each and every student, then those competencies are what you want to uh, have as the bedrock of professional development. And you want to have it as the bedrock of how you evaluate teachers over the long term. So I, I think. Um, uh, the, the uh, I'm sorry we didn't think of the portrait of an educator earlier because we could have married the two together and teachers might have felt a little bit more control over the process that after the portrait of a graduate is done, teachers will get a chance of designing their portrait of an educator to support it. Uh, but we got there um, and and um, it's this practice just in its, in, its, in, its, uh, in, in its infant stages. But um, we were happy to highlight it in the book, and we believe more and more districts will be doing it.
0: And, you know, I'm kind of coming at this from two different places. Uh, First, I was a superintendent in Illinois for 15 years, and now I work in higher education with uh, aspiring school principals and even help out with our teacher ed program. So when I first started reading and hearing more about this profile of an educator, I thought, wow! Think about all the times we interviewed teachers when I was a school district superintendent. If we would have had something like that in place, how that would have been able to drive that that process to select the best teachers. And even thinking about higher ed, to have that in a teacher ed program, to you know let them know this is what districts aspire to to find whenever they're hiring teaching candidates. I, that just would have been
1: so powerful. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, there was
1: there was one example in the book. Of a, of a superintendent in Ohio who uh, had to hire a new principal during COVID. And she had a portrait of a graduate in her district. And uh, she said um, to the candidates, the person who gets a selected principal will be the person who most convinces us that they can bring this portrait of a graduate to life in the high school you're about to run. And the person uh, who won, uh, who, who, who got the job had done exactly that. And she said, amazingly, she said, and uh, he's making it happen during COVID. And um, that was, uh, that was an, inspiring, an inspiring moment. But I, I, I brought, bring that up because your point is, once you have a portrait of a graduate and once you have a portrait of an educator, You have a lot of um, uh, signposts for people in the district, but as you suggest for people who are helping to, uh, planning to come to the district, or even people like you now in higher ed who wanna support the district. The portrait of a graduate and the portrait of an educator should become driving visions for education that, that, um, that really end up encapsulating for our uh, leaders, our teachers, and our partners, like higher ed, um, how they can best help students and educators get where they need to go.
2: Yeah, and one thing I would add to that, I think another thing we heard from a different superintendent was, you know, how they're using tools like these for hiring teachers and getting teachers to look at them and set their own goals. You know, are, do you want to join a district that's moving this direction? You know, what where are you? Where are your strengths, and what are your growth opportunities? So I think these tools lend themselves to, um, you know, a culture of professional learning where um, just like with students, uh, you know, we're not saying every student has to be perfect in all of these competencies from day one, but these are opportunities for you to grow your strategies, your practices, um, and develop maybe some new strengths when you join the district. So it, it opens those conversations with applicants about you know, is this candidate somebody who is going to be a lifelong learner who really wants to lean in on some new strategies and set some professional goals? So I think that's a, an exciting opportunity, too.
1: And we had a district in Connecticut who uh, used the portrait of a graduate and a portrait of an educator as the bedrock of their orientation program mm-hmm. uh, and their professional development program. Mm-hmm. So I think it it works for prospective uh, prospective participants or educators, and it works uh, as a guideline for for the district on an on, ongoing basis, and particularly for new uh, a great way to help orient new teachers. Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, as as I look at the title of the book, redefining student success. Obviously, um, you know the old traditional model it has a lot of uh, it's ineffective in a lot of ways. And I've heard you say, Ken, that the ultimate goal has to be to help kids become creative problem solvers. So we're really talking about deeper learning. But you know what? The two things I hear the most right now in schools, uh, and it bothers me a little bit, I hear about learning loss. And of course we've had learning loss uh, with COVID, but the thing that really bothers me is we talk about accelerated learning. And I just think that puts an extra layer of stress and pressure and anxiety on teachers and kids And parents, there's not a magic wand to make up two years of lost instruction time. So as we kind of reflect on, you know, going back to normal or whatever normal is today in our schools, how do we really dive into that deeper learning strategy and also try to get kids to grade level as quickly as possible?
2: Well, you know, oh, like
1: oh, go I'll
2: offer a couple of thoughts uh, to start us here. And, and, and one is, I guess, when the term you're using accelerated learning is accelerating toward what, you know, what's the metric that you're looking for? What's the goal there? Is it reading scores? Is it, uh, you know, standardized math scores? Um, or are you looking um, beyond the traditional metrics and really looking for those, you know, indicators that are able, are kids able to take what they're learning and solve a problem? Can they apply it in a new context? Have they had um, perhaps what I like to, <laughs> a phrase that an educator friend was using recently, have they had some learning leaps? Have they, uh, in, you know, encountered problems during COVID that they really had to dig deep to solve, um, find some new ways maybe to learn in different ways, to collaborate online, to learn from experts, because that was part of their learning experience during COVID. So I think um, it comes back to what's the goal that we're driving toward. And if we're going to keep using traditional metrics, we're going to stay stuck in this space of you know, constantly sorting and measuring kids according to standardized um, scores. And that can't be the only way we look at Student growth. I just don't think that's that's fair to our kids, you know, or or to the experiences that they've just been through over the last couple of years.
1: So I think learning loss is looking in a rearview mirror, and uh, you know, one of the uh, conversations that I had during COVID was with my my daughter-in-law talking about our grandson, and she said, well, you know, he got home, and all of a sudden she realized. Uh, he was a very good student, did very well in school. And all of a sudden, she realized he wasn't really self directed, that he had been doing this work at the behest of what teachers wanted and what teachers asked. And when during COVID, uh, you know, you were really, you, you sort of took the, the band aid off and realized, oh my goodness, uh, there's a lot of things at work here, one of which is we haven't been producing self directed kids. And uh, we need self-directed kids, both to solve the problems we have, but also to deal with crises like this. And, um, and they're not going away anytime soon. So I think um, the nice thing about the portrait of a graduate process for those districts that have not gone through it yet, in particular, is that it allows you to sit down with your community and say, what is it that we really do want for our kids? And we, we're going to do it as a in the middle of COVID, post-COVID conversation, but as Susie says, it's got to be more than just how are we doing on the old metrics. It's what do we learn about what kids aren't able to do, and how do we reconfigure uh, uh, the goals of education uh, given what we've learned through this crisis? And I think that that um, uh, it, you know that that's the beauty of of urging communities. Uh, to collectively take on this challenge of setting the setting the, the North Star for their district.
2: Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that, that we've learned through this, you know, this crisis is just the importance of focusing on the whole child, the social and emotional well-being of our kids um, is in a spotlight in a way that I think it wasn't before COVID. You know, we've always known that's important, and there's been great work over the years from organizations like CASEL and others that are really focused on what does it mean to, to emphasize social and emotional learning. Um, but that's another area where I think at schools that, um, you know, have the capacity to look beyond strictly, um, you know, uh, old-fashioned test scores, you know, traditional test scores, and look at how are our kids doing in terms of wellness and what do they need? What kind of support do they need to thrive going forward from this moment? We had some great examples um, in our research from districts that, that were able to quickly adjust to the challenges of COVID and think about how do we bring all our resources together to focus on the needs of our kids and what the struggles are that they're facing individually and what supports we have in our community we can connect them with um, that are they're really going to help set them up for getting through this and and being um, you know thriving uh, young people um, going forward from this challenging time so I think that's something else that's come out of this moment that is you know it can't just be reading and math scores that we focus on it we really need to think about how are our kids doing and I think that's an, a question that it's going to really resonate with parents uh, at this moment as well cuz you know they're seeing firsthand the challenges that their kids have experienced
0: And you know, I think the thing that uh, I really love about the book is you use so many practical examples from inside of classrooms and, you know, going back to taking it from theory to action, you're showing that the work is being done and whether it can be replicated or districts can kind of make it their own. There are possibilities out there and you're kind of giving them, Ken always talks about that North Star and I love that. So it kind of gives them a guiding light to kind of settle in, but you both have great experience with PBL. And I personally, I felt like PBL was making great strides, big time momentum, pre-COVID. And then COVID hits and kids can't be together, so they can't collaborate and they can't work together. And I almost feel like uh, the PBL concept took a little bit of a hit during COVID. So how do you fire that back up and how do you restart that? Or what did you find uh, in your research?
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, the examples that, that we shared came from um, a you know, period of time, some pre-COVID, some during COVID. Um, I think it was, um, it was probably the rare teacher who was able to keep the momentum for project-based learning going during COVID. There, we certainly found teachers doing that and using tools like Zoom that we're on now for it, enabling kids to collaborate in breakout rooms and enabling them to do some more learning on their own. So not having to be kind of under the teacher's direct instruction and control all the time, but you know, meeting first uh part of the day and setting them loose on some individual assignments and then coming back. Um, But didn't happen everywhere. And I think you're right that some of the momentum slowed down a little bit, but I do think it's ramping back up again. You know, I think we're, um, you know, in Kentucky where you are, I know there's a big initiative underway uh, to bring PBL to schools, you know, across the state to students across the state. And I think the examples that we shared, um, you know, in the, the middle part of the book is filled with what we describe as field trips. Let's take readers to see examples of what sorts of problems interest students, how they're going about tackling them. Every one of those is a project. Every one of them is an example of project-based learning, even though this isn't strictly a PDL book. It's just embedded in the learning experience that they're you know, asking questions they care about, identifying problems, coming up with solutions and doing something, with it, applying it um, and sharing it with an audience. So, you know, I think the, um, the energy to do this work is coming back. It has been a challenge, but, you know, I'm working with school systems around the world that are moving in this direction despite the challenges of COVID, and this is where they want to be going. So it's like they're getting a second okay. one uh, that I really hope uh, takes us the next step.
1: I just don't accept the premise that because of COVID, uh, you can't do project-based learning. The whole society now is in project-based, it's in problem-solving mode and and 60, 70% of it is online. Uh, This conversation's online. There are conversations going on all over the place. My daughter works at a a major high-tech company in the the Bay Area. They haven't slowed down their problem-solving. In fact, their problem-solving has increased. And I think Susie, there was a wonderful example in the book of kids who actually were working on the problem solving of helping their parents and helping yeah. others during COVID.
2: Yeah, it was an elementary district in California, and um, this is a district where they really value students as problem solvers, and they've scaffolded that for students. So they help them think about how do you ask good questions, how do you do research. You don't just you know, throw kids loose and say, go figure it out. You know, they really scaffold it. But in this district, it's Encinitas uh, in in Southern California. um, When COVID hit, they turned to their students as problem solvers and said, okay, you know, we're early on, we're in this online learning situation. What's challenging and, and what can we do about it? And the kids came up with training videos, created training videos for their parents. They recognized parents were not so great at using technology and uh, the kids were comfortable uh, with online tools, but parents wanted to be supportive and they didn't know what to do. So they created materials to help their parents understand how can you be an advocate for your child um, in an online learning situation? And, you know, as they got ready to return to school too, they thought about how do we make our um, campus safe and uh, welcoming for everybody as we come back? Um, You know, from this kind of feeling of quarantine and social isolation. And again, kids were the focus group that helped the administrators and teachers plan, how do we return, Um, you know, what sorts of practices and activities are going to help us stay safe. So, you know, you know, the As Ken said, um, and as I talk with teachers all the time, COVID has demonstrated that it is a project based world. You know, this is a great example of a huge unexpected problem with no one right answer, requiring extensive specialization and experts coming together and being able to communicate and use data and all the things that we've talked about for years as, you know, here's the future of education. Well, guess what? It's here it arrived and I think students themselves have watched adults struggle with a lot of this um, so they're they're in a position to think are we going to be ready for whatever challenges are ahead of us and how is school going to get me ready to be the problem solver I need to be if you know I'm the one who's supposed to address uh, an issue of this magnitude in the future
0: And you know as someone that uh, worked in school administration and now works with aspiring school leaders, Without question, my favorite part of the book was when you talked about the green light culture. I mean, mm-hmm. I, re- I really get excited about that. Can you can you both kind of shed some light on what that means as you kept finding, finding some common themes as you talked to school leaders?
1: That was one of the most fun parts of the book, which is um, uh, we went back over our notes extensively because we did over 250 interviews. And... As we were talking about culture, we looked and said, there must have been eight instances in which we talked to people and said, well, how did you know it was okay to innovate? Or how did you know it was okay to take a risk? And the answer was always, well, my principal had given me a green light, or I thought I had a green light. Or the principal would say, my superintendent had given me the green light. And so when we when we ended up pulling that all together, we went back to all these people and we said, um, "You use the term green light," and it turns out that it's really resonating with people in a major way. So now, tell us a little bit more about how do you know you have a green light? How do you give the green light? But here's the the basic point of the green light is is, is twofold. One, um, do do teachers know, and do students know for that matter, that they have a green light to innovate and experiment? But secondly, is it clear what it is that the green light is for? So the great districts are not just saying willy nilly, you got a green light to do whatever you wanna do. The question is, um, how do you formulate the green light in, in a way that it's clear to everyone that experimentation and innovation is being supported in, 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 for example, in pursuit of the portrait of a graduate or in pursuit of the portrait of an educator, which would be great ways of focusing the green light on a direction that matters to the future of the district. Susie, you may have more thoughts about this as well.
2: It's interesting, Greg, because you're in um, Kentucky and Jason Glass, who's now your state commissioner in Kentucky, um, uh, had been uh, the superintendent in um, Jeffco schools in Colorado when we spoke with him some of his teachers and some of his principals, where they were among those who really used this term, a green light culture. Um, one of our favorite examples, I think, in the book was a, a group of uh, sixth graders who tackled an issue of pollution in a, a lake. You know, 200 sixth graders, four teachers came together to solve that problem as citizen scientists working alongside the city water department. And the teacher was really clear. You know, I knew I had the green light to design a project this ambitious because it's what my principal is always telling me, you know, stretch yourself, go in this direction. This is what we want to see. Work with your colleagues to come up with something, you know, exciting and impactful and with deep learning that meets your learning goals. You know, this was a great example of an authentic project that addressed really key uh, learning Learning goals. And we also talked to the principal, um, and she said, Well, our superintendent, in this case, Jason Glass, made it clear you know, we're a district that wants to give the green light for innovation as long as it's in the direction of, um, you know, the focus that, that this district had. And Jason himself, you know, said, the Green light's really important, but you can't green light everything. You know, you need parameters, you need boundaries. And the, that's it you know it just like a really good project is designed with um, constraints and parameters so is the green light you know it can't be just broad let's green light everything under the sun but what are the things that we can really highlight that are going to move us in the direction we want to go as a district
1: well i've been i've been on on the road now with uh, about the book and one of the most exciting well, we both have, but I'm saying in my in my conversations, one of the m- most exciting parts of meeting with people and talking to them about the green light is how rich the conversations get when you really um, talk to it. Because it, if it's just a, oh, well, the green light's kind of cool, you know, I got a green light. But when you get, really get down to, do the teachers feel that they have a green light, even if the principal thought that they were giving it? And does the principal really feel that, that he or she has a green light from the district. And so there's a rich conversation to be had about our teachers, principals, and superintendents all having a really candid dialogue about whether the green light exists. And if it doesn't, what do we we need to do to make it happen? But I I think it's turned out to be uh, one of the richer parts of the book that's been spurring some great conversations where people have been pursuing it.
0: Very well said, Ken, and, and great job to you both. Thank you so much for being here and certainly safe travels as you're out uh, sharing all the great information from your
1: research.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Wonderful to chat, chat with you, Greg.
1: Craig, so glad you're doing this. Uh, you're keeping, keeping at it and it's just a pleasure to be with you again.
0: So that's a wrap on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Once again, a big thank you goes out to Ken K. and Susie Boss for a great conversation on how to redefine student success. Be sure to jump over to Amazon and buy the book. And as always, be sure to like, share and subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcast. Also, remember, you can support my work with Reimagined Schools by going to the Buy Me a Coffee link. Again, that is Buy Coffee dot com slash dr greg goins and you can buy me a bourbon and support all the great things we're doing here in kentucky to support p12 education as we continue to think about how to transform schools so until next time folks thanks for joining the conversation and keep fighting for change in your school